podcast that investigates the experience of self, the events that have shaped our world, the people that we have become, by focusing on the person first. What's your earliest memory of somebody who was good at life? Oh, that's actually quite easy. So, so Donald Boyd, who became pretty much a surrogate father for me, he and his wife Octavie were friends of my mother and father. They were childless. So they were terribly interested in children and very good at talking to them as if they were just ordinary people instead of talking in a special patronizing way. And Donald was a, a person who never got angry with people, but, but found something in everyone. Uh, he had been at Summerhill School, which was a school set up by A.S. Neal. And A.S. Neal was a, an old Scottish school teacher who decided, I've got to get away from this idea of punishing kids and, you know, making them full of fear. If I'm going to get them to learn anything about life, they have to be happy and comfortable. So they were allowed to design their own lessons. And Donald and his brother were two of Neil's first pupils. And he told me wonderful stories about S. Neil. Uh, there was a time when there was a big discussion on the BBC about whether you were allowed to use uh, corporal punishment, you know, whether you're allowed in schools to use corporal punishment. And in the middle of this discussion, as people are talking about the pros and cons, A.S. Neil leans into the microphone and he says, do you mean you as an adult would hit a child? And it just brings it right back to what it is. Yeah. But, but also, I remember Donald telling me one time he, he wanted to try and fix some equipment and he, he went in and stole a screwdriver from the, the workshop. And Neil called him to his office and said, you don't have to steal something. If you want something, just ask me and I'll give it to you. And that forgiving way of teaching a lesson, I think, was great. And Donald picked up all of this from A.S. Neil and was able to sort of convey it in his way of dealing with others. So that was the first person I saw who had really got life right. Very happily married, uh, married for 70 years. Uh, Seven person. zero. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. So that was a that was a fantastic example of a... A well-used life, I think. How old was Barry then? I knew them from birth, so I can't remember when I first noticed this. But I remember Donald was a fantastic driver. He had been taught to drive at 12 by his father. You know, in those days, you could just be a little bit crazy. And he had fantastic skills as a driver. You always felt very comfortable and safe in his car. He, what car? He was driving a Triumph Vitesse. Wow. Uh, with the hood down, <laughs> and on Sundays in Glasgow, he would drive us up towards Loch Lomond and up through the Highlands and so on. And and he would go very fast, but it always felt very smooth. There was never any strain in the car. Yeah. And you got that feel that this was someone who understood everything about the movement and working of the car. And he would strip it down and build it up again. And you, you just loved being in the hands of a driver like that. Yeah. He sounds like a, uh, a specialist, somebody who you know, took what he was interested in and learned as much as he could about it. He did, but he was also just incredibly open. Uh, when, I, when I was a young boy, I divorced my parents. It was a very clever thing to do. So at the age of 14, my parents did this terrible thing of moving from Glasgow to Edinburgh. Now, it would have been a terrible thing for a Glasgow boy to find himself in an Edinburgh school at the age of 14, 15. Were they um, the enemy? They were the enemy, and it would, have been, it would have been pretty tough all around. 
So I persuaded my folks. I fought really hard and persuaded them. You have to let me stay in Glasgow because it'll be very good for my schooling. I'm coming up to my O-levels. It'll be very disruptive if, if, you know, you move me. I don't know how I managed, but it was a campaign all summer long. And I persuaded them, if you, if you let me stay in Glasgow to go to school, I could live during the week with Donald not to be this lovely couple. And uh, they were living near the school and it would be fine and I'd come back at the weekends and you know, this is how we'd manage it. So they agreed to try this and Donald not to be were up for it. And the funny thing was that who, who saved asked me. them? The, the I, I think my parents asked them, but I knew that they were willing to do this. I kind of got that. And, and it, was, it was the best thing I ever did because they were liberal, open, educated, interested. And there they had, they had to take the worst years of adolescent <laughs> life of this boy. You know, from, the worst years? Well, from 14 to 18 is pretty damn difficult. Teenager, you know, always breaking the rules, always badly behaving. And, and they, they listened to me. They let me talk nonsense and sense and, you know, in different proportions. And, and they, I remember, you know, I would do the usual thing that many people did with their parents coming in late, long after you were supposed to come in. And Donald would just meet me and say, now, you know, it's not a good idea to do this because Octavie worries about you. Octavie. You know, yes. And we don't want her to worry. Uh, so, you know, have a think about that before you. And, and it was just a wonderful way. You were never really censured. You were just given good reasons to sort of adjust your behavior. So... They really saved me. They were hugely important in my life. So was that a strategic decision that he thought if he went in directly with you, you were the type of character to rebuff it? He had to kind of be angled past you and get you to jump onto it? I think so. But, I mean, he, he just knew that nobody learns anything under fear. They learn, in, they learn something if they feel loved, liked, appreciated and have an understanding. And yeah. that's true. I mean, if you think of kids today in schools, why do we think that threats and punishment are the best way to learn? Yeah. We're going to learn things when we're excited, interested, included, uh, motivated, you know, also when it's fun. So in some sense, he had just got that quite naturally, I think. That's really nice. Why did you fight for, for that? What would you think you were going to get out of this that you wouldn't have got in Edinburgh? It was just the... I, it, it was many things. I mean... School was a fantastic place for me because it was a place where the rules were very clear. You performed well, you got reward. You did your best, you got recognition. Uh, it was a fantastic time for having a peer group around you who, who shared your attitudes. I went to a co-educational grammar school and uh, you know, men and women were friends. It was possible to have that. And so this was a terribly good education. And I I knew it. I, I felt incredibly secure and happy there. And in fact, when I thought about, you know, what's my life going to be in the next few years, I felt greater affinity and continuity with school than I did with going, you know, along with my parents to Edinburgh. And I was right. And I, I really had to campaign very, very hard. I mean, there were many times when they backtracked and said, no, you're coming to Edinburgh with us. And I would put up, you know, huge amounts of sulking and... Uh, despondency and look as though my life was over and you know eventually I got my way and I look back and think that was a very determined 14 year old boy yeah and of course having wanted it there was then the harsh reality of it actually happening and I remember remember the Sunday evening in Edinburgh 
the day before the start of the new term at school. And I had to be driven back by another friend of my parents from the family home in Edinburgh to Glasgow, driving along the motorway with the windscreen wipers, almost not able to cope with the rain and arriving you know, on a wet Sunday evening in Glasgow in uh, September. And I went into Donald and Octavie's house and I'm wondering, how's it going to be living here? And I remember Octavie said, would you like a glass of milk? And I said, yes. And she said, well, you know where it is. It's in the fridge. Just help yourself. And that was, that was very good. You know, the, the rules nice. were clear. I'm not going to wait on you. Yeah. And you're going to fit in and you're going to yeah. know where everything you're is. you're a part of this now. And they handled that very well. And although there was a little bit of homesickness, I knew I'd made the right decision. Within a, a week, I was convinced. Yeah. If I was traveling back, I'd feel like I'd abandoned this family's future a bit. My own family. Yeah. I had, but they were, they were kind of self-sufficient. I mean, they were people who were very interested in their lives. I'm not sure they really understood what children were for, uh, but my sister went with them. And my sister and I had never really had much of a relationship. And I think she actually probably felt quite relieved that I had gone there. I think she was, she was quite happy. So the terrible thing that my parents did to her was I was born... Two years after my sister, on her birthday. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. So for, you know, Move out of the way. Get exactly. that birthday so, cake. So for, for sibling rivalry, I think there's nothing worse you could do than the moment that's special and celebratory is <laughs> taken up with this, this little baby and this other kid who comes along. So The so, ultimate present. Yeah, the ultimate <laughs> present. Baby. Well, she, apparently when I came back from hospital, she picked me up by the foot, dropped me back in the cot and said, you can take him back to the hospital now. Oh, and, wow. and things didn't change much from there. <laughs> So I think I think I did her a favor by staying in Glasgow. I think I, I gave her back the space she was due in the family. Gosh, that's so interesting. So something I'd like to know, do you have a mantra or daily practice? No. Um, I thought I, a mantra would be, I mean, I have, a, I have an aspiration, which I remind myself of from time to time. And, and sadly, people remind me of how far short I fall from it. But... You know, if there's something I really wanted to be, it would be wise, strong, and kind. I think those are the attributes I want. I think that would do if I could if I could uh, make sure I always was operating with all of those. Then I think I'd be okay. So if that's your kind of like um, spiritual, I mean, the spiritual is just the word we'll use. Yeah. If that's the kind of the the goal or where you'd like to be, and then you look at your day to day, have you reconciled the two? into one do they they overlap a lot or is it sporadically sporadically i mean i think academia is a funny place because academia we are using ideas we are um you know around very interesting people we have to use our minds to work with that's our tool and yet uh there isn't often a lot of wisdom there there's clever stuff and clever people clever folk with clever ideas but but wisdom, that's a little harder to achieve. And wisdom's always about stepping back and taking time to understand the whole situation, not just having a quick fix. So wisdom would be great if I could exercise it at the time in dealing with others or dealing with a situation. Very often it comes a little bit late and you realize maybe to your shame that you were not as 
kind of understanding or thoughtful or you didn't appreciate the whole situation and then you bring that wisdom to bear later. I think what would make me a better person is narrowing that time gap between action and wise reflection. If you got them to coincide, then that would be pretty good. Being kind, I think, is important. I think you have to exercise that. And of course, being strong when things are tough, which is allowing your feelings, emotions, and uh, allowing the feelings, emotions of others and allowing their weakness and not reacting badly to that. So, yeah, I think I often get two out of three, but three out of three and all at the same time, if I could do that during the day, I would be, I'd be very happy. But then I wouldn't have to think about it. (laughs) Being kind and being strong, they're things that understanding when they're to be applied is as critical as the application itself, right? Yes. And is the wisdom the underpinning of that, like knowing what to do now? Does this person need a show of strength, uh, a bit of kindness? Yeah. How's your, how's your knowledge of how you apply those things? Because you, I reckon you're quite a decent and kind person. You seem like that's how your natural state. Um, I think you like to be calm and you like, you know, things to just be positive around you. Don't think you're a drama <laughs> seeker, <laughs> drama addict. Um, I think you're like that. But then um, how do you know how to judiciously apply that? So I think you're right. I think what you need to do is have a, um, a very flexible uh, mind where you adjust for the circumstances you're in and the people you're dealing with. They will need different things. So it's not a case of... I get myself into the right state and then everything will go well. No, I mean, you have to, you have to adjust. I mean, the other thing is I, I, am, I do like to be calm and uh, strong, but I, I also get a buzz out of good new ideas and motivating people. I like to have a team of people who I can sort of excite and inspire and bring them with me. I mean, that, that I really like. And, and when you are able to do that and you're able to get the best out of other people, uh, that's good. I mean, a lot of the times in academia, you might be teaching or mentoring somebody who's smarter than you and you give them the best you can and put them into the best condition for them to go on and, and, and go yeah. beyond you. There are some academics who find that very difficult, whereas I think that's the point. That's the point, right, yeah. I like that. What <laughs> we've spoken before, and we've kind of covered this off anecdotally, but why why not run away from everything, house, home, uh, work? I think of that every couple of days. Every couple. Is it of always days. an option? No, it's not really an option, but it, it it can. You know, when 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 things feel very closing in and confining, it is nice to have that moment of stillness in your in your mind where you suddenly think. What if I just stepped aside and left all of this and, and you know, was living a very simple life somewhere, uh, somewhere in the countryside, you know, working on a farm or having a small farmhouse somewhere very isolated, you know, just me and a cat and, and maybe doing some writing. And, and, you know, of course that appeals. And I think many people have that, that thought. And actually, you just need to feel that it's possible to realize that whatever you're doing now is also your choice and mm. that you're not trapped and it's not so obligatory to do what you do, but you're deciding to do it. Yeah. Do you think the world just go on fine without you? Yeah, I think the world would go on absolutely fine without me. Uh, I would hope to have given some people around me the means to make their lives better and that, that will continue to add to what the world has. 
But I don't need, you know, an epitaph or any uh, sort of special notice for that. I mean, I, I do think you take your turn and your place and you hand on things to other people who take their turn and their place and hand it on. I mean, I, I, I do feel part of the, the great chain of being in that way. I think, you know, when people say they want to live forever, I never understand that. Mm. I always think we have our time and yeah. we use that time and then we step aside and let others have their time. Yeah. And I think that, that gives you an appreciation of how precious that, that life is yeah. and the possibilities it has and don't waste them and you know, don't do something you don't want to do. But um, I think it's also about understanding that you're there to, to give to others as well. When did that awareness of that's an, a really important part of, your, of life for you, when did that kind of come about in your brain? came in many places. I mean, I remember, like, like, like many others, I remember the moment at which death seemed to be a reality. Um, I remember exactly where I was. I was coming back from school and I was walking past Kelvin Grove Park and, and I had been uh, like a very pretentious adolescent reading all sorts of, you know, deeply intellectual books. And I think I'd been reading Beckett's Malone Dies, which is a very bleak description of somebody in terminal state of terminal illness in a bed you know tended by nurses and about to conk out and I suddenly became really vividly aware that death is it that's it it stops there's no more it's it's not that you think what happens after death you've missed the whole point of death if you ask what happens after death you know that's it and I would be I would be gone that was one thought and then the other thing where you say, what would the world be like without me? I remember even as a child, when I was sick and off school, I would have a very strong imagining of this empty desk in the classroom, <laughs> the daily classroom. And I would think of that empty desk and people would maybe notice at first there was nobody there. But then they would get on with their business and the world would go on and the class would go on. Is this desk free? Is it this desk free? Yeah, let me have that. So it just struck me that, you know, you mustn't make yourself uh, the representative of the world in your, in your own narrative. You have to understand your bit of it and, you know, probably quite a dispensable part of it. Yeah. It's a shame you were kind of left your own kind of conclusions to come to that. I think it'd be great for people to talk about that. When I, when I talk to people about death, it feels like something that's, um, you know, mourned and feared in, in uh, I guess, our culture. Um, but um, a lot of people around the world have very different views of it. Views yeah, of it, right? well, I mean, I mean, I think there are different things. Like everybody else, I fear dying. I don't fear death. I mean, Wittgenstein said, death isn't sure. an experience in life. Exactly. You're yeah. not there. And in fact, everybody thinks that's a great original insight of Wittgenstein. It was Epicurus who first said that. Oh, wow. Epicurus said, when you die, you are not, and when you are, you're not dead, you know, so yeah. why fear death? But dying, nobody wants to go through agonizing time. And I also think the knowledge that we're dying, I mean, when dying's approaching, you do feel it's the extinction of this ability to have these wonderful conscious moments of just, just looking, you know, across the street at a building of people moving, of... Uh, light in the sky and sometimes when you just catch those moments they're just uplifting your yeah. heart rises yeah. and you just get that moment of pleasure and stillness and you think all that all that goes from here so i think 
that that feeling of fearing dying is probably going to be similar for a lot of people. But but death, um, being you know no more, no, that's that's quite okay. And as I say, you've had your time. The candle goes out. Others take your place. And the idea of staying around and cluttering things up, I mean, <laughs> being in the way. Using more resources. <laughs> in the way. Yeah, in the way. Using more resources. I mean, you know, it's a it's a it's a small planet as we're realizing with scarce yeah. resources. We have to hand, you know, hand the planet on to others to have once we go. Yeah, that, that rhythm and cycle feels good. I, I think And it, it came from my my understanding of this came especially from farmers, because I had a, a sort of naive fantasy about farming life and how you be close to nature and close to the, the, the seasons and the natural cycle and, you know, how, how wonderful this be. In fact, the life of a farmer is bloody difficult and, you know, grueling and hard. But it, I think the romance about it came from uh, one of the most important pieces of literature in Scotland, A Scots Quare. It's a trilogy, three books by Lewis Grassic Gibbon. Um, and it starts with Sunset Song, Cloud How, and Grey Granite. And there he has farming folk uh, moving from village to, to town to city, and this is the journey of Scotland and how it becomes you know, industrialised and built up. But it's in the 1920s, 30s, and you see there this sort of spiritual, not in a religious sense, but in a in a much more profound sense, spirituality of farming folk, you know, who, who look at the land and they see the, you know, the cloud coming in and the rain coming and they know that this is part of, you know, yeah. the changing of the seasons and the cycle will come and things live and things die and, yeah. and things repeat. And also watching farmers I knew at funerals while everybody else was nervous and shuffling around and maybe having drinks and telling inappropriate jokes to break the tension, the farmers just looked very at peace with it. And they would talk to the deceased's uh, family um, in a very natural way, and they would reassure them. They wouldn't behave oddly the way most of us behave when we don't know what to say. They would just be steady and strong. Mm. And I thought, they've really understood what life and death is, and, yeah. and, and I want to learn from that. That's really interesting. Um, Alan Watts, I like his stuff. Um, he said this line, and I, I'm going to take it out of context and see if it means anything to you. If you get the message, hang up the phone. Yep, that sounds right. <laughs> that sounds right. And so often the message is sent and not heard, and so often the message is misunderstood. And I think if you get it, you think, right, got it, move on, don't, don't linger with that. Mm. And also I think um, nothing worse than somebody persistently trying to say the same thing if it's falling on deaf ears yeah. leave it now yeah and i think also we're all we're all tempted to bang a point home or drill it home you know i've had this great thought and i'm going to tell you and i'm going to repeat it and i'm going to make sure you get it sometimes more effective to say it and it's a little semantic drop you know like a like a pebble falling into a pond and the ripples go out slowly and yeah. people will eventually get it you yeah. can say something and let them dwell on it and pick it up when they can. Yeah. But it's also interesting because, you know, if you got the message, put down the phone, this happens in advertising. Think of, you know, the commercial world. I remember learning a lot from somebody who told me as a, as a very successful advertising exec, 
have you ever watched adverts and you didn't get them? And I said, yeah. And I'm sort of wondering, so what was the point of that? He said, they weren't for you. <laughs> you know, they were very targeted. Don't worry if you say, I, I didn't get that at all. Yeah. The people for whom they were designed got it. Yeah. And you don't have to. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, that's right. You don't have to get everything. That's fine. I love that. I mean, it lends back to what you said before, um, like when you're working with people, having wisdom and, and you know, when you apply it and the passage of time, um, abandoning having to control things in the moment, knowing that everything has a, a kind of a course to it and a route to it. People have a, a way of being persuaded and maybe your advertising technique didn't hit those people. And actually saying that's fine, that's okay. It's not a weakness. It's not a, a lack of achievement. It's just that's the way the world will be. I'm here to have an impact on the world, but it can do without me. So I'm, I think like, yeah, we're lucky to have the opportunity to try and make, even if you just make a noise and no one really cares, it's still the joy of having to do, of being doing that. Yeah, it's it's trying and try and not try too hard and to try and succeed more often than you fail, I think is, is good. When you're dealing with others, you know, my day-to-day -day life as an academic, um, you need to be flexible. And I think flexibility is the thing of, in, in your mind. You've got to have different speeds and different gears and move and shift according to what's needed. Um, uh, at the same time, I realize sometimes that I'm having an effect on people that I didn't know I was. You know, I go along to a meeting and I'll make a plea for something. And then people say, gosh, I was completely convinced by what you did. And I thought, really? Because I didn't think I was doing a very good job. I just thought I was, you know, struggling to get across. So sometimes one can have the wrong take on one's own yeah. force. Yeah. Um, in speech, I always think, I have a very limited vocabulary. I'm sort of, I'm, I'm like an anorexic. I think I'm poor of speech and limited in, you know, in expression. And I struggle and try to get things across. And other people say, no, it was incredibly powerful and convincing. And so I think, gosh, I didn't know that. So, so maybe I can relax a bit. And not, yeah. not just keep trying to force the point home. So you're right. Don't, don't, don't try too hard, I think. What kind of people do you like to be around and not through work? and not through endeavours, just on your downtime. And I'm also talking to the lonely farmer as well, so maybe yeah. it's no one. I love talking to people who um, tell me something I don't know. But I, I, I think, so, you know, talking to a farmer, getting their take, getting inside the mind of somebody who sees the world from a different vantage point can be good. Politically, that's very hard if they're coming from a very different place. But But, you know, they just have a very different set of experiences and they... They share their vision with you. It can feel really expanding to get inside that and see that. Yeah. I, I get that talking to people in business and in industry and in, in science, uh, in the arts and and in music. It's it, it's great. At the same time, I love talking to someone who challenges me and pushes me a little bit farther. You know, there's this saying: if you live with the the lame, you learn to limp. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. if people just going, oh, that's right. No, I agree. Yeah, that's true. You just yeah. think, mm. but if somebody adds to or qualifies what you say and you think, oh, that's good. And then you add a little bit more. There's a lovely dance that goes on where the two of you bring out the best of each other because you're both adding to the picture and the story and the discussion. Yeah. And you're elaborating together and you don't know, there's no determinate way it's going to go. It's unfolding. It's a bit like jazz. And yeah. I think when a conversation is like that, you think, 
wow, that was good. I mean, and you you feel, I didn't know I was you know capable of thinking these things. They they just seem to appear in the moment, but they were created by that dialogue with someone else. Is that important if the person has the agenda of discovery in their mind too, or can they just simply be telling you about their world? They can, but I think I think the most important thing is playfulness. Yeah. I think playfulness is great. You know, when people realize that sitting down and having a conversation is quite a playful and creative thing, you know, the tracks are not laid out. The worst thing is a sort of prescribed conversation where you know how it's going to go and you've got the guide ropes and people hold on to them, you know. So, so there are certain regimented yeah. situations, you know, you're standing at a bus stop and people <laughs> don't know what to say, so they say, oh, it's a lot sunnier than it's been for a while. And then the other person says, yes, no, it's been a very funny summer, yes. And then you think, God, here we are both holding on to the guy ropes. We're both going in the same direction. We know how this is going to go. Can we subvert this? Can we kind of just take it somewhere else and see how how we both react. So that takes energy and we're often lazy and we don't want to do it. And we're thinking about, you know, meeting we're going to, or we're thinking about all the tasks we have to perform, but, but, but playful open-endedness of yeah. discussion, yeah. like the one we're having now, that's, that's so much more fun. You don't know where it's going to go, but the two of you are kind of laying down the shape of it together. It's a little bit like starting in a, a wild field, and you're going to take a path through it, and you don't agree necessarily which way you're going to go. You kind of feel each other as walking side by side, and you you adjust to each other. And by the end of the the walk, you've taken a path, and the grass is flattened, and that's the direction that you've made together. Yeah. So, do you think there's a point to humans? Do you think we matter? I do think we matter because I think we're you know we've evolved very far and very fast. So, in terms of the animal kingdom. Um, you know, we're pretty impressive. I mean, we're impressive and scary at the same time. You know, we've, we've done a lot of good and we've done a lot of harm. But the very fact that we control some of the conditions of our own evolution is very unlike other animals who are subject to it. We've got so much choice. And, and, and also, we've now got these big brains with lots of conscious thoughts and feelings to entertain ourselves. And in a way, part of our... Um, problem is how are we going to entertain ourselves for the whole of our lives? How are we going to use all of that? What are we going to do with it? You know, um, sometimes we've just got the basic necessities and lots of people are not lucky enough to escape from that and they're going to have to use an awful lot of that um, capacity just to get by, to get what they need. But lots of us have tremendous amounts of spare time and tremendous amounts of extra capacity and, and the decision is what am I going to do with that? Do, do any animals answer, ask questions? I think they might ask very local questions. How do I get the banana? You sure. know, the funny thing is when you watch chimps um, being taught to do things by humans and the humans are very interested in what the chimps are capable of and they, they set up all sorts of elaborate experiments where you know there's deception and the chimps have to figure out how to yeah. work around certain obstacles. And the poor chimp's just thinking, what the hell do I have to do to get the banana, for Christ's sake? Yeah, you know, yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll use all my smarts. Just give me the damn banana. Yeah. Um, so they think of local things. But yeah. I think the difference is that a lot of animals are very rooted in the here and now, mm. what they perceive, what's around them, what they're uh, facing right in front of them. We have minds that allow us to think a lot about our past and also to project into the future and to imagine ways the world could be that are not the way they are, alternative realities, uh, visions of, of existence that are, are completely different. 
that range of imagination, I think, really makes us rather special. And the other thing is we are the I mean, I think there are two things that make us special. Um, we're creatures with minds that know we have minds. We think of our being minded creatures and we think of others with minds and we, we wonder what was on in other minds and we wonder how satisfied we are with our own conscious thought. But we're also the only creatures, I think, who know that we're going to die. And I think that's living with that knowledge and we've talked about that before in this interview. Um, I think that also makes us slightly different and slightly special. So uh, is it, from your perspective and what you've learned, is it widely understood that animals don't have a con- concept of themselves as an entity separate? I wonder whether they do. I mean, I, I think th- that animals look at the world from where they are and are concerned and indeed um, very concerned with you know preserving themselves and defending themselves and and getting what they need individually but the idea of thinking themselves as one mind among many others part of a community of minds i don't think they have that and i think we need that in order to have a concept of self concept of self doesn't just come from being alone with your mind it comes from distinguishing yourself from others somebody said i think it was ian McCune. he said the first time um humans learn to keep secrets that's when they become aware of their, themselves they test kids this way don't they they do they put the little doll in the box yes. and ask where will we yes. think she is or that's something. the false belief test the sally ann test so um two kids are looking at a couple of puppets and one puppet uh puts a, a, a marble into a drawer and then the doll who's done that leaves the room and then the naughty, uh, the naughty puppet takes the marble and puts it into a different drawer. Now, when a child comes in and the child who's watched this, when they're asked at the age of three, where will Sally, when she comes back to the room, um, where, should, where will she look for the marble? They say where the marble actually is. But a child of three and a half to four says they'll look where they thought it was, that she'll look where she last left it. And this is an ability not to be dominated by just what's actually in front of you, but to think that somebody else's view of the world might be based on limited information or different information from you. And as soon as you can think of that, it's called the false belief test. You realize that somebody could have a false belief because they didn't see what you saw. Young children think, you see exactly what I see, and they, they just assume that, you know, even if you're looking the other way, you see everything as I see it, and you feel it, and taste it as I taste it, and so on. Learning that others are different, that their situation and their, uh, their conditions and perspectives are going to give them different inputs is now recognizing our minds are different. But that's also about recognizing that you're different, that you're a self. There is this test that um, Gordon Gallup developed uh, with chimps and and other um, non-human primates. The mirror test, do animals recognize themselves in the mirror? So what they do is they put a little bit of paint on the forehead of the, the chimp. And if the chimp looks in the mirror and rubs the paint out, then it obviously recognizes what's in the mirror is, is itself. Now, children eventually pass the mirror test uh, very early on, very young. Um, but if you video a child walking around a room and you show 
it can look at the monitor and it can see itself moving in real time. It recognizes that's me. But if you have a slight delay at the age of three, the child doesn't recognize that that's itself, even though it's wearing the same clothes and looks like it. So it takes a while to What's the millisecond the amount? It's a long enough delay. It's, it's not milliseconds. You, you need to have, you know, maybe a, a 10 or 12 second delay. And that will be enough oh. for the child not to, to think that's me. Yeah. But, but the question is, when an animal looks at itself in the mirror, it might recognize that's my body. Yeah. But does it mean it thinks that's me as a self? Yeah. So I think there's more required than just recognizing your physical reflection in a mirror to count as having self-knowledge. Yeah. So I think we're the only creatures who have real self-knowledge, yeah. humans. I think um, there are creatures with minds, and they're different from ours. And there are creatures with minds who know they have minds, and that's us. Yeah. And I think that's a very special thing. And I think it also goes with the fact that we have capacity for language. Yeah. Because we're able to explain our minds, share our minds with one another, uh, reflect internally in what's going on with us. Yeah. Do you use any of what you've learned in science um, and the world to help you out of periods of, you know, uh, low feeling or feeling like? Yes, yes and no. Um, I mean, we all have those periods where we feel low and flat and so on. I think there are two reasons for that. One reason could be because there's something that you're not facing up to and recognizing. And sometimes when you're feeling quite dulled and low and maybe even if you're being a bit critical of others um, too quickly. Is that, that a good sign that, 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 that you're not in a, a good that space? That could be a clue that <laughs> you're not really that contented with yourself sure. and that you're lashing out. And it's almost like an, I, when I hear that, people having a go or even someone shouting in the street somebody else, they're just saying, I'm in pain, help that's me. That's right, that's right. It's a, it's a cry, isn't it? But, yeah. but, you, but you sometimes get hold of that and if you're very calm, very relaxed and just let things surface, you can get hold of it. Other times, I think, the, the lowness and flatness comes from just not using your mind enough and quite often do things, you know, read things, listen to things, uh, go to a gallery, go and see a film, fill the mind. There's a great story that Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, tells of you know, a sausage machine that was producing wonderful sausages. And then eventually it thinks, I'm such a fabulous sausage machine. I'm going to just examine my innards. And it just looks inside, but it no longer has the meat coming in. And then it doesn't do anything. Yeah. And then it's very unproductive and it's very unhappy. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the thing. If we're too reflective and contemplative, uh, we can feel unhappy. If we're not reflective at all, we yeah. don't really get the most out of it. So there's a sort of balancing act yeah. to be in the moment, to be taking things in, appreciating that you're taking them in and what you're getting out of them, but not being so reflective about yourself doing that, that you unsteady yourself, yeah. unbalance yourself. That's really hard. I think that content thing's really important. Um, I literally watched a documentary on Stanley Kubrick and a few other artists this weekend. And a lot of the common denominator with artists, filmmakers is before you even begin a project, just go out there and consume the world. I think um, the story about Stanley Kubrick is he'd order every new book <laughs> that had been published, uh, you know, just at random. And he'd have them delivered to his home, 50 new books. And I think it was his assistant. She said, she'd just hear bang, bang of him throwing them against the wall. Yeah. Hand captured him within the first 10 pages against the wall. And then 
I think she, she was talking about The Shining. She said he read The Shining and it just carried him along. Carried him, carried going. And he, yeah. I mean, that, that's right. And, and that happens in a lot of art forms as well. I mean, we know as we walk around a gallery, your eye just falls on the painting you want to move towards. And in the first couple of seconds, you're like, that's the one I want yeah. to look at. And think of music. Uh, you just need the first few bars. Yeah. First few bars and you know. Yeah. Um, it's a story about Elton John um, going into uh, the big Virgin Megastore when it used to be in Oxford Street, and he would buy up all the new CDs that came out, and he would just play the first few bars, and then, no, 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 skip, 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 skip. Oh, there's one. That's a good song. That's interesting. And, and that's interesting, and I, I do that as well. I mean, I have to fly far too much, um, both for the environment and my own good, uh, for work. And um, one of the things I often do when I get on a plane is I start listening to their playlists, and I start list. I, I actually go through music I haven't heard, and I just have the first few bars. Nope, 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 nope. And if something grabs me, I know. And I think that's so interesting that you can tell within those first few bars, is it going to grab you? But can you? Because I, I, yes. <laughs> I'm not sure this is true because you're evolving as well as to what your centre, sometimes what you need, what needs to get you to your next musical interest Right, that will become your centre. It's so far removed. I'm going to mention Radiohead. Kid A, <laughs> I turned around and said, was absolute shit <laughs> to a lot of my friends. And they were like dumbfounded. They were like, I went, I listened to the entire thing standing in a record shop on the CD on the wall with the headphones. And I hated so much of it. And then it's one of my favourite albums now. Yes. So it's an acquired taste. Now, I'm interested in acquired tastes because the same is true about wine or food or whatever. There can be something that you, you yeah. really, you know, doesn't, doesn't move you or even you don't like. And how do you come to like it? Uh, question, does it taste or sound the same when you like it uh, as when you didn't like it? And I think the answer is yes. So then what's changed? Must be something in you. And how did you get to change you to respond to it? So, so you're absolutely right that an acquired taste requires you to to have a new perspective and a new context context and and we also know that familiarity breeds consent i mean you know that you know that once you've heard or tasted things many times there you like them more i mean if I, if i want someone to like a piece of music the answer is get them to listen to it 10 times they'll just like it much more but <laughs> Dolph punk learned that yeah yeah so it is true but but something has to shift. I mean, if I was talking to you, you know, you've got a fantastic uh, knowledge of music and and um, taste for it and appreciation of it and so on. You could take something that I didn't instantly like and you would then give me a few ways of thinking about it or you give me associations or you'd say, think of it in relation to this this band or, or, or this composer and so on. And, and I would start shifting and I might get it. That's right. But but instant likes, that we can still do it with two bars, I mean, that's not going to move us on. Instant likes is going to keep us in the same space. Sure. In fact, instant likes is going to keep us in the same space with which recommend our algorithms. Are going I was going to say, yeah, they're going to your algorithm is going to love you, Barry. It's going, to, it's going to give you everything. It's going, there you go, there you go. So it's, and that's the thing I, I, I'm in print saying this. Uh, that's the thing that I think is wrong with recommend our algorithms. They, it's, it's, you know, not the wisdom of the crowd. It's the preference of the crowd. Like yes. everybody who liked this, like that. Yes. And if you're like them, you'll like it, but it won't 
move you on and it won't give you new tastes, new discoveries. It turned, I think it was um, David Byrne who said, it tends towards memes and not masterpieces. Yeah. So, you know, you to give you something quirky and new and interesting, yeah. you've got to go outside that. But, you know, when you just want your quick hit, you're on a plane, I, give me 10 songs that, you know, when I'm working, I can just put the headphones on and listen to. It's going to work a treat. I just thought of an, a masterpiece algorithm. Bohemian Rhapsody, Paranoid Android. Yeah. Like they're seminal pieces that yes. define them. Yes, yes. And, and of <sighs> course, I think we all had the same experience when you first listened to Bohemian Rhapsody. You thought, what the hell is this? Yeah. What on earth? And then, of course, you know, sung everywhere, known everywhere. Yeah. You know, everybody can do the whole thing from beginning to end. And it seemed too long to have it as, yeah. a, as a you know pop song at the time. So, yes, we've got to shift people out of their comfort zone, and that's exactly why I recommend our algorithms. Or my little test of, you know, first three bars are not going to be good enough, but they're going to be good enough for exactly what I need at the time, yeah. So I tried Riesling for the first time. Great. And I was like, he went, it's a bit petroly as I drank it. Yep. And it was like this kind of syrup petrol. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that is disgusting. <laughs> it was almost like taking a sip of Tom Ford, like one of those heavy oud type vibes. <laughs> oh, And um, then I just was like, that was the one that stood out in my mind. Yes. Uh, and Toronto's as well, quite... Uh, Toronto is very floral, very yeah. flowery. Toronto always has uh, an aroma of Turkish delight. Yeah. When you smell it, it's tur pure Turkish delight. Yeah, you that's think, right. And once you know that, you kind of think, oh, mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't particularly like it. I mean, I think I, it bores me very easily, whereas there's a lot of <laughs> variation in Riesling. So yeah, you said right. one of the things in Riesling, but you didn't get the other thing. And I think you need them both. You need diesel oil and lime yeah. Now it's the diesel oil and lime, and the lime really matters. If you have too much diesel oil and it's very viscous and oily, and there's not yeah. a lot of acidity, it's not going to be good. No. But but diesel no, oil and right. lime, and the lime cuts through. Yeah, that's right. And that acidity, and, and the thing is, it's definitely lime and not lemon. Yeah. And um, the thing is that a riesling can actually get quite sweet. You can have a lot of residual sugar for some of the off-dry ones, but as long as that's balanced by enough acidity. It's perfect. Yeah. I think it's very funny. I give people off-dry, medium-dry uh, Rieslings, and, and they say, oh, it's quite sweet. And you give them a dry Riesling. And they say, which one's got more acidity? And they say, oh, you know, the dry. And you can look and find out, no. Yeah. It's the medium-dry, because it's got to have more acidity to balance that sweetness. And it's all about balance. You yeah. get it right. But I had the same experience with um, Viognier. So there's a, there's a particular patch of the northern Rhone, Condrieu, uh, which makes one of the world's most sensational uh, Viognier's. And I'd always, you know, great wine enthusiast at the time, young in my experience, but I remember thinking, oh, I want to have something which is different and new. And I'd read, this is one of the world's great white wines. It's one of the world's greatest white wines. So I, you know, rushed off, bought a very expensive bottle from Berry Brothers, brought it back, put it in the fridge. Looking forward to it in the evening, open it up, try it. Didn't like it. I, I need to zoom back. So what was the circumstances? So you got home, I got described home. to me. Yeah, I got home and room. I was, I, yeah, I was, on, I was on my own and I had created something, I can't remember, some very simple meal uh, to eat something that wasn't going to interfere with you know the flavour of it. So had you changed out of your work clothes? I had changed out of my work clothes. So and you had your comfies. Yeah, I was, well, I or hadn't got tux. that far, but I was <laughs> hadn't got into my duds or anything. But I was, I was really anticipating this, and I had to leave it in the fridge for long enough, and then think, okay, 
Feel the bottle. Yeah, so that's cold. At least an hour and a half. At least an hour and a half. Open it up, pour it out with a lot of ceremony into, you know, decent large Your, size yeah. glass and swirl it round. And I get that kind of very floral, flowery note on the nose. Try it. Didn't like it. Didn't like it. And I thought, ugh. And I remember thinking, this is enormously disappointing because everybody, <laughs> everybody raves about this. is one of the world's greatest fine Did you kind of just calm yourself down? I, I, Did you I, think no, like I, you I, jumped to a conclusion? I jumped to a conclusion and I, I, I tried drinking more of it, still didn't like it, and I didn't really want to finish the bottle. I mean, I, I, not, I wasn't going to anyway, but I, I didn't want to have any more. I had two glasses and I thought, that's it. Um, I thought, ah, very disappointing. And... And I felt disappointed in me, and I thought, well, maybe I'm not really up to this. You know, the, here I was thinking I was, you know, quite proficient at tasting and, and assessing wines, and yeah, this doesn't work. And then I talked many months later to a friend of mine, uh, philosopher in Kent Bach in California, and Kent said to me, oh, don't you just love that <laughs> apricot flavor, that bitter apricot kernel, and that... Uh, you know, that wonderful sort of oiliness. What does the kernel part mean? Well, Sorry. If if you're eating an apricot and your you your tongue gets to yeah. the to the stone, yeah. it's much more bitter than the flesh. Yeah, yeah. And and it's got that, oh, it's got that. bitter apricot kernel sort of uh, note to it. And he said, Don't you just love that 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 viscosity, that oiliness and that bitter apricot kernel? And I thought, that's exactly what it was like. And he said, so good with seafood. And when he said that, I suddenly thought of cold, salty seafood, that bitter apricot taste, that oiliness, and I knew, I knew it was right. And I rushed out a day or so later, bought another bottle of the exactly the same wine, brought it back, had some, some, some beautiful seafood, some lovely prawns and some, some crab meat and so on. Tried it, tried it. Exquisite. Wow. And since then, it's been one of my favourite wines. I love it. It's a show-off wine. When you when you get the <laughs> when you get the aroma of Condria, it's like a a field of um, young fresh flowers. It's 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 a, it's glorious. It's just such a kind of extravagant aroma of fresh flowers, and then the tastes exactly as as Kent Barker described them. And I just needed him to make me aware of what it was and how well it would match certain foods and realize it's meant to be like that. And I then knew what was wrong. What was wrong was I'd been drinking lots of, uh, I'd been drinking Riesling, I'd been drinking White Burgundy. I love White Burgundy. I think White Burgundy is, you know, they are some of the most exceptional white wines in the world. So I was kind of measuring it by White Burgundy standard. And then when it wasn't at all like that, it seemed it was your kid disappointing. A. Yeah, yeah, it was my kid A. It was, and and you know I've done this I've done this previously, but got hold of it very fast. I remember um, we we did some work with Hessen Blumenthal. One time we went to um, the Heinz Head in Bray. This is the uh, wonderful Next to the fact part, up. and it's the fact up. Yeah. And we'd gone there with a Nature of Taste conference, and we did arrange the menu in advance. And when we got there, we were told, oh, with the chef's compliments, he'd like to you know give you some champagne. So I didn't look at the champagne, and it was poured and talking to my guests and um, I try it and I think, oh, that's a lousy champagne. Oh my God, that's a really lousy champagne. Then I thought, no, he wouldn't have given me a lousy champagne. Wait a minute. I tried it again. I said, that's a great Prosecco. (laughs) So if you have the category wrong, 
it's horrible and it's disappointing. Yeah. But if you get the category right, you've got the right expectations, and then you can really appreciate what's there. Yeah. And so it's a marrying of your expectations and your prior knowledge with the sensations you're actually getting coming in yeah. when you get them together. I mean, if you, if you want, you know, an album loud with adolescent grief and whining and misery, then, you know, Radiohead's for you. <laughs> College rock at its best. <laughs> I'll let that one slide because they evolve as a band. <laughs> um, you said about self what I think it's, it felt like self-worth. You said the things you admire, you want to be wise, kind, and strong. Yeah. Um, can I just remove those and just say, in terms of self-worth, is there any other quality that would give you a strong sense of self-worth? I think achievement. I mean, I, if I've produced a good piece of philosophical writing, I think that makes me uh, that that gives me a good sense of worth. If I, writing does not come easily to me. Um, I really have to work at it, and quite often I'm extremely late in delivering pieces. You know, and deadlines come and go, and publishers get furious, and journal editors get mad, and so on. But when I do finally deliver it, if somebody turns around as they often have and said, "This is beautifully written," and it was worth waiting for. Then I feel, wow, um, great. Um, because you must work to remove any evidence of your labor. It must read beautifully and easily, even though that was yeah. hugely hard and tortuous to do. Yeah. Your job is to leave it clean and accessible and engaging for someone else. If I don't get them in the first paragraph, then yeah. I haven't done my work. I exactly like you yeah, know, Kubrick throwing the books away. Yeah. I, I actually spend days, sometimes weeks on the first paragraph, the opening paragraph. Really? It's got to get you there. You've got to. And, and people have said to me, oh, I like the way you're writing uh, really locates the problem or it, or it really frames it. Or I, I quite like the way you're very sympathetic to the opposition's view and you, you, you make sure you know, you've really given them time and consideration. And I think if I've done that, uh, I've done something good and worthwhile. And the funny thing is, once I've done that, I do feel a sense of achievement. But they're like my children. I let them go. They're now out there in the world. Mm. And they now seem very removed from me. And sometimes I read them and think, oh, that's rather good, but it, does, it feels yeah. quite far away. Yeah. Um, and that I like. I also like, as I said earlier, bringing a team together and motivating people and, and we, we get the best out of each other. I mean, I, I think it's interesting that when I do that, we do a lot of public engagement activities at science festivals or art festivals or whatever, where we go on the road and we take our Center for the Study of the Senses and we take the team and we deliver things. We, we've been doing lots of events for the last three years at Tate Exchange, where Tate give the whole floor of the uh, fifth floor of the Flatnick building Blavatnik building to have um, us come in and we've got philosophers, artists, scientists, a lot of neuroscientists, psychologists, putting on little sensory experiences for people to try where they both feel they're doing and having an experience and doing an experiment. Uh, they're, they're learning something and excited by what they're doing. And at the same time, they are um, contributing to the science. We're getting data from them. And we've done that with Tate Modern and we've done it with the Getty Center in LA. And when, when that comes off and works and you see the public enjoying it and thinking, oh, I learned something about me and I'm I and I was 
glad to do it. And we also get something back because we get data and also we get their reflections on how well these experiments are designed or working. And the whole team feel they made that happen. And my colleague, Ophelia Derois, who's in charge of the, uh, the Tate Exchange Program, she brings you know, people together to do this. It's just wonderful watching that happen. And yeah. you can feel, you just feel great. And you feel you all shared it, you all participated. But you, know, you needed to put a bit more of the energy and effort into to make sure people were confident and happy and, and able to do it. I think that's why... I kind of like working with chefs and restaurants because a kitchen brigade and the front of house team, they have that camaraderie. They yeah. have that feeling. It's hard. It's tough. But they're working for each other and they, they've got to collaborate and cooperate yeah. uh, together. And when they do it, tremendous sense yeah. of achievement. That's fantastic. Thinking about the things that you're involved in, like, you know, that you're writing, you, something you're creating. You said it's like my little child is out there in the world now, abandoned. Um, which is right, I think. Um, with the other things, you're almost like this enzyme of discovery, taking people like musicians or people who are creating food or drink and then working with them to kind of push their boundaries, running experiments through the middle of that. Would you like to be responsible for, and have you done this? Because I, you, I think you may have done, but have you created your own bottle of wine or written your own piece of music or do neither of those two things interest you? I haven't done that but but then again I think you know we all have to know which parts we play and you know my skill is thinking about human experience especially through our senses and how we take in and appreciate the world around us and have knowledge of ourselves through our senses and how how our senses work in a way that's surprising and uh, rather different from the way we tend to think they work just by reflecting on them. Many more senses than five. The senses interact with each other. They, they, they affect each other's workings. So I, I like showing that to very creative people in the arts, in perfumery, yeah. in, in food and drink and so on, and helping them find a way to enhance and express uh, what they're doing best. They make brilliant products. And, and uh, I, I think it's a shame when you know, a winemaker spends a whole year making very difficult decisions about you know, when to harvest the crop and um, whether to you know, control the fermentation or not and uh, to put it in oak or not in oak and for how long and when to bottle. And they do all these things. And then they give it to somebody and, and the person says, I like it or I don't like it. You know, it's like the Roman emperor decision, yeah. thumbs up or thumbs down. And yeah. I think, why don't you just spend a little bit of time thinking yeah. about it? Yeah. This person has had a year's worth of creation, construction and, and creativity and they've, they've offered it to you. How can I find a way for you to engage with it that doesn't just have the thumbs up, thumbs down, but lets you think about, dwell on, appreciate, notice what's going on there. And I think with, with lots and lots of, it can be music, can be art, can be, can be food or drink, with lots and lots of complex phenomena that come our way, they're so beautifully constructed and all that complexity went into their production and creation and crafting. Yeah. How do we give people the means to unlock that complexity and notice and appreciate and dwell on and reflect on and get the most out of it? And that's where I'm interested in working. I think yeah. that's, that's the skill. If I can contribute something there, that's what I'm uniquely able to do. That's 
so interesting how people own their decisions. And if you take comedy, I reckon you ask anyone, is that funny or not? There's not one person in the world that would go, Yep, didn't like, didn't like that. That's not funny. Owning that decision. You ask about a piece of music. If it alludes to being maybe with a string, you know, sweet writing it, they might think, oh, this is too complex. I won't. Yeah. But if it's Radiohead or someone like that that did a weird thing and yeah. it feels like it's for them, maybe, they might cast an opinion. And then if it's wine, I reckon the majority of people that I send, you know, these are people who are, have time and money to to get interested in this kind of stuff, don't think their opinion counts, would feel absolutely stupid yeah. listing what it's like yeah. and would go, oh, floral note, you know, and they'd laugh at it. They'd be so embarrassed about being asked that question. Yeah. What are you getting here? They yeah. feel like they're, this is not their world, right? Yeah, and I, I always want to democratise the experience of drinking wine and the, and the skills used to enjoy drinking wine. I don't ever want to be at a tasting where there's some expert up at the front who's just telling you what you should think about the wine. You know, here's a lovely tight-knit Bordeaux from the right bank. You know, it's, it's showing more evidence of the plummy, juicy Pomerol, but still with very fine grain tannins, la, la, la. And everybody thinks, I've no idea what they're talking about. And I'm sure I'm not able to notice that. And they feel left out and they feel talked down to. Mm. And, and two things happen. One, they say, it's not for me, and they come away. Worse is that's all nonsense. You know, the the the, the revenge is to say <laughs> they're, they're they're talking you know bullshit, and that most of that just doesn't mean anything. It's and and that's why the press love discovering every now and then articles about how experts could be fooled, and it's all you know totally. it's all nonsense. There's lots of that, usually very badly run experiments, I have to say. But um, <laughs> but but instead of that, what I want to do is for people to have the means to discover what the wine is doing to them. So I think it was Hugh Johnson, I, I, lucky enough to talk to him, great wine writer and uh, tremendous knowledge of wine. And I said to Hugh, how do you describe wines here? I mean, how do you come up with all these descriptions all the time? And he said, well, I don't start with the adjectives. I start with the verbs. What is this wine doing? And what is it doing to me? And you think, that's great. Immediately, the pressure is off. Wow. You don't now have to have the yeah. plummy, juicy, you know, fine grain, la la. Just think, what, what's going on? What do I notice happening? And what do I notice the wine doing? And I think that's a great insight because, and if I am uh, leading a tasting, it's very immersive. I get people to do little uh, experiments on themselves and notice what happens and reflect on it and, and talk to one another about it. I'm just back from doing this in the States and um, uh, very lucky to have a chance to um, do a, an event called Bacchus Uncorked at the Getty Villa, which was wow. uh, a tasting uh, chiming in with their current exhibition, which is on um, the Villa de Papa the papiri, which is what the Getty Villa is modelled on. And that is a villa that was covered in the ash and, and volcanic uh, fallout from Pompeii in Herculaneum, uh, excavated, you know, virtually 2,000 years later, we find all these great finds from philosophy. We find the works of Epicurus in the library, etc. But, so I had a lot of volcanic wines. But, but when I was doing the tasting, what I wanted to do is, the thing that's, 
more like a critic and less like the ordinary experience. In fact, the, the ordinary experience we have is the hardest thing we do. Somebody gives you a single glass of wine and says, what do you think? What are you going to say? You try it and you say, I like it or I don't, because that's the thing you can immediately come up with. But better than that, give people two glasses of wine, which is what I did. Try the one in the left hand, try the one in the right hand. Same or different? Uh, they're different. Which one do you prefer? I prefer the one on the left. Why? What's different about it from the other one? And now people will say, and, and I got them to, around their tables, have a show of hands. Who likes the first one? Hands up. Who likes the second one? Hands up. Okay, now, I want you to find the person who had the opposite verdict and tell them why you like the wine uh, that you chose better and they tell you why they like the wine. You, and they're all chatting away and you see their hands moving and they're describing the. And of course, now they realize, yeah, I can do this. I've got the means to sort of explore my tastes, my preferences, you know, my reactions and responses. And I think now you're off to the races. And you, 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 there are all sorts of simple ways in. Give somebody a, a red wine to try. And you say, what do you think? And they say, it's fruity. You say, okay, red fruits or black fruits? Now, that's actually quite easy to do. You think, yeah, is it more like strawberries, raspberries? Yeah. Cherry, is it more like blackcurrant, blackberry and so on? People can do that. And then once they say, oh, it's more black fruit, you say, okay, what kind of fruit? And now they'll start to think about it. Yeah. Similarly, talking about Riesling, you give somebody a white wine. So you get that sort of acidic, slightly sharp, you know, tanginess, uh, more like a lemon or more like a lime. Yeah, yeah. It's usually one or the other. And, and they realize they can do all of this. And yeah. then you, you can also say to somebody with a red wine, what is the texture like? Is it more like velvet or satin or silk? Now we can do that. Why? Because our fingers as mm. are sensitive, so are our tongues. And you can feel with your fingers whether it's satin or silk or velvet. And so can your tongue easily imagine in those differences. And you can try wine. And people are very consistent. And now you say, look, I, you actually know quite a lot about this. Yeah, yeah. You just, you just didn't have a way to describe it. But I'm yeah. using your sensations, your experiences of perceiving what's going on in, in you and in the wine, rather than using a whole load of highfalutin adjectives that, you know, the wine trade use. Yeah. The wine trade have got to catch up. I mean, I think some of them are getting this, a lot of them are getting this. Yeah. Understanding it's much more about exploration. Yeah. And you'll do that. And then nobody feels uh, left out or foolish or I don't know, or it's way beyond me. Yeah. So I, I, that's that's what I want to do. And I think that that move will stop us falling into a horrible, very topical situation, which is elitism or populism. Yeah. So elitism, oh, there are all those people who think they know what a wine, uh, what's good wine and what's not. And they will tell us, why should we listen to them? And, you know, they're just dictating their taste to us as an elite. And, and who gives them authority? So we'll reject them. And they're probably talking nonsense. And you rush to the other end, which is, well, everybody's taste is as good as any other. You know, um, uh, you know, it's the democracy of taste. Everybody can taste and everybody's view counts. But, but all they then say is... <laughs> that last bit I don't no, agree exactly. with. exactly. And, and all they then say is I like or I don't like. Yeah. And that's actually not good enough. I think what yeah. you need to have is something which allows you to say, no, let's talk about what's, what the wine is like, but let's talk about it in a way that you're comfortable with because it's exploring you. Yeah. And now you can see there are facts to get at yeah. and we can reject both... 
uh, elitism and populism. Both mm. of those are premised on the idea that there's, there's nothing to say here. Yes. Not true. Yeah, Not absolutely. True. In the spirit of the democracy piece, um, I could talk to you for hours, but I think it's better to do, <laughs> probably shouldn't. do an hour and then give you, um, and then come back to you maybe later in the year if you're, if you're around. Um, what, would, what would you recommend to anyone listening? It doesn't have to be a wine, but just something that's given you intense joy in the last few months. Could be a book, could be anything, or even a visit a place. Yeah, I mean, I still think uh, art galleries. You know, um, every town, every every city has got an art gallery. Usually, um, go and look. Find your own taste. Find your own time, and and take time with a painting. Um, when you're feeling that your life is very busy, noisy, your head's full of thoughts and, and there's the crutch of thoughts, as Wittgenstein says, they're all jammed at the door and you have to take them one by one. What will slow you down and calm you is going to a gallery and look at a painting that captures your attention and look at it long enough until the internal monologue quietens down inside and you give yourself over to the painting. Then the painting starts speaking to you and that's a very good meditative exercise, I think. I like that. Thank you so much, Barry. Great pleasure. Thank you. 